Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Greetings and welcome to the Industrial Alliance Third Quarter Earnings Results Conference Call. During the presentation, all participants will be in a listen-only mode. Afterwards, we will conduct a question and answer session. At that time, if you have a question, please press the 1 followed by the 4 on your telephone. If at any time during the conference you need to reach an operator, please press star 0. As a reminder, this conference is being recorded on Wednesday, November 4, 2020. I would now like to turn the conference over to Marie-Annick Bonneau, Head of Investor Relations. Please go ahead. Good afternoon and welcome to our third quarter conference call. All our Q3 documents, including press release, slides for this conference call, MD&A, and supplementary information package are posted in the Investor Relations section of our website at ia.ca. This conference call is open to the financial community, the media, and the public. I remind you that the question period is reserved for financial analysts. A recording of this call will be available for one week starting this evening. The archive webcast will be available for 90 days, and a transcript will be available on our website in the next week. I draw your attention to the forward-looking statements at the end of the slide package. A detailed discussion of the company's risk is provided in our 2019 MD&A, available on CDAR and on our website, with an update in our Q1 2020 MD&A. I will now turn the call over to Denis Ricard, President and CEO. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for joining us on the call today. I will first introduce everyone attending the call on behalf of IE. First, Jacques Potvin, Chief Actuary and CFO. Mike Stickney, Chief Growth Officer and responsible of our U.S. operations. Alain Bergeron, Chief Investment Officer. René Laflamme, in charge of individual insurance and annuities. Sean O'Brien, responsible for our mutual fund business and wealth management distribution affiliates. François Blais, in charge of our dealer services, special market solutions, and IE Auto and Home, and Eric Jobin, responsible for our group businesses. We are quite pleased with our third quarter results, which are very strong for a second straight quarter. As shown on slide three, profitability was particularly good with reported EPS up 18% year over year. For the first time since IE became a public issuer 20 years ago, our quarterly reported EPS is above $2. Core EPS is also up at $1.83, a 5% year-over-year increase. Several factors support these solid results, including favorable policy order experience, such as the excellent performance at IE Auto and Home. Indeed, the performance of this subsidiary continues to be outstanding. Our sales results are also noteworthy as they were strong in almost all business units, including in more mature markets, such as individual insurance in Canada, 
where we continue to see growth potential for IE. Our Q3 results, with 14% growth in individual insurance together with 11% year-over-year growth, clearly demonstrate that the disciplined execution of our strategy focused on cons consumer and distributor experience enables us to continue to grow in this market. I also want to comment briefly on our dealer services businesses. In Q3, following the reopening of car dealerships, there was an upturn in car sales, which positively impacted our Canadian and U.S. dealer services sales. This shows that the challenges that may arise from the pandemic in this sector are only momentary and that the potential for growth in this capitalized business remains just as interesting. As for our financial strength and capital position, it remains sturdy with a sound leverage ratio and a 125% solvency ratio, up 1% from the previous quarter, with low sensitivity to macro uh, variations and ongoing capacity to generate organic capital. To conclude my comments on our Q Q3 results, I would like to say a few words on our vision and strategy. We manage IE with a long-term vision of sustainable growth and financial strength that aims to provide peace of mind to our clients. The strong results that we reported today show that prioritizing the well-being of our clients allows us to best grow our business and create value for our shareholders. These good results are also the outcome of our smart choices in technology. For instance, part of our success in individual insurance and sec fund sales is due to Evo, our high-performance platform which is used by 100% of our career network and close to 90% on the MGA channel. In Canada, about 93% of individual life insurance applications have been submitted through Evo since the beginning of the year. As for the United States, for the last six months, about 88% of new life application, insurance applications have been done electronically. These and other decisions that we have made when investing in technology have served us well since the beginning of the pandemic. Over the next months, we will continue to focus on the well-being of our clients as well as our employees and distributors and facilitating their work. This will enable us to continue to deliver high-quality service to our clients and create value for our shareholders. We will also continue to support our communities affected by the pandemic as the second wave is underway. In addition, we will, of course, keep up working on our positioning in the new normal that will follow the pandemic, as well as on the integration of IES. I will now let Mike comment on business growth. Following Mike's remarks, Jacques will provide more information on our earnings and financial strength. On that note, I'll pass it over to Mike. Thank you, Denny, and uh, good afternoon, everyone. In continuing with the uh, very good sales results at the beginning of the year, business growth during Q3 was robust in almost all business units. Please refer to slide four as I will comment on sales results by line of business. In individual insurance, sales totaled more than 53 million during the third quarter, which constitutes a significant 14% year-over-year increase. Many factors explain these good results, including the strength of our diversified distribution networks, 
our digital tools and the traction of new products, namely a new YRT universal life product and a participating whole life insurance product. Now, looking at group insurance businesses and employee plans, recorded sales have more than doubled those of the same period last year, standing at $26 million. The addition of a large number of new groups during the quarter contributed to this good result. In dealer services, rapid growth recovery following the reopening of car dealerships led to total sales of more than $309 million, up 3% from 2019. As for sales of special market solutions at $40.3 million, they were lower than last year, mainly due to the decline in travel insurance sales. In our U.S. operations, sales momentum remains strong in individual insurance with a 30% increase year over year. In the dealer service division of our U.S. operations, sales totaled $249.1 million U.S. dollars, a significant increase over the sales for the corresponding quarter in 2019. This is mainly due to the addition of the IS sales since uh, May 22, 2020. In Q3, sales results in this division were supported by the recovery of car sales following the reopening of dealerships. Conversely, automobile inventories in the U.S. reached their lowest levels in seven years, which may have tempered growth during the third quarter. The integration of IIS, led by Krista Gruber, the head of our U.S. Dealer Services Division, is progressing well as planned. The ongoing integration has a wide scope in order to maximize efficiencies and synergies between IIS, DAC, and IIA's corporate services. Now, turning to slide five for individual wealth management, let's start with the guaranteed products for which sales continue to be excellent, totaling more than $208 million. Segregated fund sales were also very strong, with gross sales of almost $725 million, up 26% year-over-year. IA remains number one in the Canadian industry for net sales, with nearly $376 million for the quarter, more than double year-over-year. In addition, the company currently ranks second in the industry for gross segregated fund sales, close behind the number one position. Moving to mutual funds, gross sales were up 17% year-over-year to nearly $540 million, $545 million. Net sales recorded inflows of nearly $48 million and were therefore positive for the second quarter in a row. This performance was supported by the contribution of our affiliate networks. Now turning to group savings and retirement sector, where sales were significantly higher than a year earlier, totaling $1.2 billion. The signing of groups with substantial assets of both accumulation products and insured annuities explains this good result. Finally, direct written premiums in our PNC affiliate I Auto and Home continued their steady growth and increased 14% year-over-year. Overall, these sales pushed premium and deposits to a quarterly record of over $3.9 billion dollars for the third quarter, an increase of 43% year-over-year. As for assets under management administration, while they slightly decreased over the last 12 months, mainly due to market downturn, they increased 3% during the quarter, driven by net cash flows and growth in financial markets. In summary, again this quarter, our distribution networks, supported by high-performance digital tools and our comprehensive range of products and services, have proven to be key success factors of our growth story. Our efforts are now focused on maintaining this strong momentum.
I'll now turn it over to Jacques to comment on Q3 earnings. Thank you, Mike, and good afternoon, everyone. We are very happy to report today excellent Q3 results. Starting on slide six, reported EPS was $2.03, which is 18% higher than a year ago. On a core basis, EPS was also very solid at $1.83. For Q3, and also for the first nine months of 2020, core EPS is higher than last year's. Core ROE for the last 12 months is 13, uh, 12.3%. Now digging into results, please move to slide seven. Policyholder experience was again favorable in most business units, including the individual insurance and group sectors. It was even more positive at IE Auto and Home, our PNC subsidiary, which continues to have results above expectations. Macroeconomic variation also had a positive net impact of 12 cent EPS on the result. Strain was in line with expectation as increased premium in individual insurance offset the negative impact of the first quarter drop in interest rates. Incoming capital generated a 4 cent EPS loss, mainly due to lower investment income. On the tax side, the company's status as a multinational insurer was the main factor supporting the gain of 12 cents EPS. Finally, two other specific items are not worthy. First, we incurred a loss of 11 cents EPS, mainly due to a software write-down. On the other hand, the sale of our residential mortgage portfolio generated a gain of 6 cents EPS. Please refer to slide 8 as I will now comment more specifically on policyholder experience, which total a gain of 15 cents EPS in Q3. Starting with individual insurance, a gain of 4 cents EPS was recorded mainly due to favorable morbidity experience and lower expenses, partly offset by negative mortality. Individual wet management reported a result close to expectation as commissions paid on mutual fund sales were higher than expected. Our group insurance sector recorded a gain of 3 cents EPS which can mainly be explained by lower expenses in the dealer service division and favorable experience in the employee plans division. The overall positive experience in employee plans is mostly due to positive long-term disability experience, which was partly offset by health and dental experience and mortality. As for special market solution, experience was in line with expectation. Group saving and retirement reported a gain of, three, of two cents EPS due to favorable longevity and lower expenses. U.S. operations reported experience below expectation with a four cents EPS loss. This is explained by adverse mortality in the individual insurance division, nearly half of which can be attributed directly to COVID-19. As for the U.S. dealer service division, favorable experience result in a small gain. 
Please note that the operating profit from the IAS acquisition for the period from May 22 to September 30, 2020 is included in our U.S. operation Q3 results. IAS profit during that, this period was in line with management expectation as specified during the second quarter conference call. Finally, as already mentioned, experience at IA Auto and Home was once again much better than expected with a gain of 11 cent EPS. This very good experience can be explained by lower claims, particularly in auto insurance as well as lower expenses. Please refer to slide 10 for our capital position. During the quarter, our solvency ratio increased by one percentage point due to organic capital generation. Indeed, we generated about 70 million in organic capital during Q3 and 175 million during the first nine months of 2020. We are quite pleased with our continued capacity to generate capital organically as we consider organic capital generation to be the best source of capital. Our resulting solvency ratio as at September 30, 2020 is very strong at 125%, well above our target range of 110 to 116%. This target range is more than adequate for IE due to the low sensitivity of our solvency ratio to macroeconomic variations. The market protection that is described on slide 11 provides a better understanding of some of the reasons for this low sensitivity. Indeed, IE has a distinctive market protection in the form of a margin embedded in our reserving process that protects against variation of public and private equities matching long-term liabilities. More specifically, this margin increases or decreases based on market fluctuation. In practice, as this margin can sustain significant market drops, we normally don't need to adjust reserves intra-year. Most recently, this, the effectiveness of that, this protection was proven in the first quarter of this year. In addition, to decreasing the net income volatility, this market protection also decreases our solvency ratio volatility, which supports a lower solvency ratio target. This protection has a great value and is well aligned with our prudent and long-term approach. The current work of this protection, which is not recognized in the solvency ratio calculation, is equal to more than seven solvency ratio percentage points. Altogether, with a solid solvency ratio at 125%, the market protection equal to more than seven percentage points, a leverage ratio of 25.1%, and a high quality investment portfolio, the company continues to be in a very strong financial position. I will conclude my remarks by commenting on our actuarial review and year-end risk management strategy. Please move to slide 13. First, we expect that our regular annual review of actuarial assumptions will have a near-neutral impact on fourth-quarter earnings. 
more specifically, any assumption strengthening, including for the URR, should be offset by investment gains and strategies to manage macroeconomic risk, most of which have already been completed to date. In parallel, since the beginning of the fourth quarter, we have concluded new reinsurance agreements. As a matter of practice, we periodically test the reinsurance market, and this year we decided to take advantage of the favorable reinsurance environment. And these reinsurance treaties are always accretive and will create value. At this time, we plan to use the gains from these agreements to take on additional protections against uncertainty arising from the COVID pandemic. Overall, we are well positioned as we expect our year-end <clears throat> risk management strategy to have a neutral to positive impact on Q4 2020 results. In conclusion, I would say that with our strong earning power and financial strength, all the fundamentals are in place to support our continued growth and to deliver value to our shareholders. Operator, we will now take questions. Thank you. If you would like to register a question, please press the one followed by the four on your telephone. You will hear a three-tone prompt to acknowledge your request. If your question has been answered and you would like to withdraw your registration, please press the one fall by the three. One moment, please, for the first question. Our first question comes from Tom McKinnon with BMO Capital Markets. Please proceed. Yeah, thanks very much. Good afternoon. Um, just two questions here. My first question relates to the new reinsurance arrangement you're, you're, you're speaking of. Uh, just a little bit more color here on what you're doing. Are you, like, replacing a current reinsurance arrangement with a new one, and in the process you're getting some more favorable terms and pricing? And does that mean you're getting some earnings gains going forward? Or is this, like, a, a new reinsurance arrangement that you're embarking into and you're getting capital and reserve release? Uh, and 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 and, I, and, and it, maybe you can elaborate on what additional protections you're going to be taking here. Does that mean you're getting some relief, capital and reserve relief from reinsurance, and you're going to strengthen reserves elsewhere? Just a little bit more color on that, and I have a follow-up. Thanks. Okay, Jacques speaking about reinsurance, and I will uh, uh, mention right away that we have not finalized all the negotiations for that strategy, so. I will be. Uh, I will keep uh, some information to not lose some uh, bargaining power because we want really to try to uh, increase the shareholder value. But uh, reinsurance, okay, we've signed. We've already signed some of the deal, and uh, for sure they will provide positive value. Uh, that value is coming from two sources. Okay, one is, uh, like you said, we will no longer require because we will no longer bear the risks. So we will no longer need to have the, the margin in our reserve and the capital ratio will be lower. The capital required to support that business will be lower. So it's all we accretive. But the good news is that uh, the reason why we strike the deal because almost uh, all year we, we, we kick the tire and we look at the reinsurance market. But this year, we felt really that uh, we had to take that deal because there was a very, uh, very good deal uh, on, on the streets. So, reinsurance is seeing more profit 
in the future business than what we're seeing. But like I said in my note, is that we, I, I'm not planning to release that profit in Q4 because I know that there will be some headwinds coming from the COVID situation. It's a situation that is very fluid. So far, so good. After three quarters, we've been hit a lot by volatility in Q1. Q2, Q3, COVID has been, I would say, uh, neutral. But we don't know what the second wave is, uh, we will bring to us. We don't know if the government will continue with their same program. So I will try to be, uh, to be cautious here and to keep, uh, to keep those margins to manage uh, that part. Yeah, the only thing I'm going to add is the need, uh, Tom, if you, if, if you don't mind. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll just add one thing here. Um, you know, regarding reinsurance, we are not dogmatic about it, uh, meaning that, uh, like Jacques said, uh, from time to time we do check you know how the market uh, is and it, it also gives some for us some comfort about our assumptions as well and uh, and this time we thought that you know the convergence of uh, these these good uh, reinsurance deals and the fact that uh, you know covid um, you know we need to 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 be more i would say prudent in terms of some of the assumptions so the convergence of the two i think was quite um, quite, uh, you know, done at the right, at the right time. So we're trying to, to be forward-looking in the way we look at reinsurance and also uh, not being dogmatic. And, Is there any and to, impact on to, earnings? To, uh, to complete uh, on your first yeah. question, it's new reinsurance agreement on, on business. Uh, it's not replacing an old uh, reinsurance agreement. And the impact uh, on earning, uh, it's too soon to, uh, to say so. In Q4, I will be able to provide that. Okay. Um, and uh, my follow-up is on the uh, amortization of finite life intangibles related to acquisitions that you disclosed on uh, slide 22. So this uh, non-cash expense is essentially doubled from 2019 levels, and it's almost entirely due to the IAS acquisition. Uh, now, this expense is included in core earnings, and I get it. It wasn't particularly material in 2019 or in the prior years. It was only maybe about 4% of core earnings or so on an after-tax basis. But now with um, the IAS acquisition, it's essentially doubled, and it's over 8% of your core EPS. And as you know, the Canadian banks have the street focus on adjusted net income, which in addition to excluding restructuring and integration expenses also excludes expenses related to the amortization of finite life intangibles related to acquisitions. And these are probably about 2 to 3% of the bank's income. Intact Financial also presents operating earnings, which excludes this, these non-cash expenses as well. So uh, can you help us understand why you have decided to include these non-cash expenses as part of your core earnings? Because the, like, the way I calculate it, you know, the $0.27 cents EPS 2021 accretion you talked about from IAS and the 38 cents you got into for 2022, these would probably be like 28 cents higher, more like 55 cents and 66 cents if you had followed the same kind of reporting adjustments that the Canadian banks and Intact Financial uh, make when they exclude these non-cash earnings from their quote-unquote core earnings. So uh, um, maybe some color with respect to that, please. Okay, uh, Jacques speaking, uh, Tom, uh, you're making a great point. You know what? Historically, in the life uh, insurance industry, it's my understanding that we've always uh, 
reduce the core earning by the amortization of those uh, numbers. But like you point out, it's not done in the bank industry. It's not done in uh, foreign tax. So that's a really good point with the fact that we just doubled it with the acquisition of IES. So for sure, uh, that's why we changed our strategy this, uh, this quarter. We provide the information in uh, the slide package. And uh, that, that's a good information. But like I said, historically, insurance industry didn't recognize it. So uh, it's a good point that uh, we, should, uh, we should be com compared on a level playing field. So like, when you looked at IAS, you looked at it on an EBITDA basis. So I assume that when you looked at it, because you gave us some pricing metrics on an EBITDA basis. So ex I assume when on that EBITDA basis, it, you know, you're excluding these non-cash expenses just the same way uh, the banks and intact exclude them. So do you think we should be looking at uh, IAS here on an EBITDA basis? Uh, maybe you can think about that in terms of how you want to disclose uh, um, the impact of IAS because uh, um, I, if we allocate those those non-cash expenses to IAS, like maybe we should, you know the IAS, maybe we should be looking at IAS on an EBITDA basis that excludes those non-cash expenses. Uh, Tom, it's Denny here. Um, I think you're right, um, and uh, you know I, I must say to you that uh, we are in the process of re reviewing our the calculation of our core earnings for for next year. Uh, what what does include and what it does not include. And certainly, your uh, your comments will be will be taken into consideration. I, I think you are right to say that you know this should be excluded. Okay, thanks for that. Our next question comes from Scott Chan with Canaccord Genuity. Please proceed. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Um, just with uh, the, the second wave that, that really started post quarter, post Q three. Um, and it may be too early, as you just alluded to, but is there any um, lessons or, or what you can draw from, from the first wave um, that maybe has affected uh, your business growth or your overall business uh, thus far? Yeah, I think, Mike, Mike, you should follow up on that question. Okay, thanks. Um, yeah, it's... Uh, we've learned it's, it's, this is hard to predict, I guess. Um, and I guess when I, I look through the company in terms of our various businesses, uh, we have learned, you know, how to manage with it. And I'd say all, all of these businesses, some better than others, obviously. I mean, I'm really quite impressed with how we've done with our individual insurance businesses in both countries. Uh, obviously, there's a lot more digital sales and so on. And going through our other businesses, same sort of thing. Obviously, our, our dealer business is a little tough because we're dependent on car sales and there's some headwinds there because of COVID. Um, and I guess the other one that's hitting, you know, hit hard, but it's a small business, is the travel travel insurance business. So in terms of a second wave, um, that's, the, you know, that's part of this that's hard to predict. Um, in my mind, it all depends on government lockdowns if, if they uh, – they come back. Uh, you're seeing that in Europe right now. Um, I don't. My my own view is Canada is needing it. The, the infection rates are still, I think, pretty well managed or under control in Canada. The U.S. is uh, has got higher infection rates, but it also has a very uh, <clears throat> unusual political situation right now. So I don't think there's a political will to make it happen in the U.S. So I, I my my best guess would be 
we carry on for the next few quarters just as we have for the last quarter. Yeah, and maybe one thing I would like to add on this is that, um, Mike mentioned that, that we've been resilient. I mean, a lot of our businesses um, is uh, being distributed through uh, advisors, and whether it's on the wealth management side, life insurance side, Canada, U.S., and uh, the, uh, you know, we don't, maybe we should, we should talk about it much more, but uh, our technology uh, were quite, advanced, quite advanced uh, versus, uh, versus our peers, and it allowed us to um, maintain and even increase the level of our sales because all of a sudden the distributors, they needed to have tools to be able to, to make their living, you know, to obviously grow their business. And we, we were able to provide them with those tools very quickly. We had invested. It's, I mean, we haven't started investing in technology during pandemic. We had started doing it, you know, in, in the recent past. I mean, over the, next, uh, the last uh, few years, it really paid off. That's, I think that's the lesson here. Uh, of this pandemic that's going to, to help us through the second wave is that because we have invested so much in technology and we are still continuing it, that uh, we should be in good shape if a second wave is, you know, is going to hit uh, seriously. And my second question is just on IAS. You, um, I, I guess you included uh, from May 22nd, so just over a month, and you kind of called out it, it added about a cent. Um, can you quantify how much IAS impacted Q3? Uh, you know, in terms of uh, earnings? What you have in the number is four cents. Uh, so uh, if you subtract that cents, if you want to have a kind of a run rate for Q3, it would be three cents. Three cents. Okay. And just lastly, you called out that vehicle inventories are, are weak, and, and obviously it's, it's from the pandemic uh, in the U.S. Do you have any visibility on when that improves? As, as I think you said, it's the lowest level. Uh, it's been uh, during the quarter. Yeah, Mike Stickley here. Um, yeah, the industry predictions that I, I've I've seen, I guess, um, is that uh, we we inventory levels should be back to let's say close to normal uh, Q1, Q2 next year. So it's just kind of a temporary phase we're going through. Okay, thank you very much. Our next question comes from Manny Grauman. With Scotia Bank, please proceed. Hi, good afternoon. Uh, just a question on. Um, really hoping you could update your, your thinking on your real estate exposure, especially in the context of the sale of the residential uh, mortgage portfolio. And also, I noticed there was some uh, commentary uh, in terms of looking at uh, uh, do, doing a real estate and infrastructure review tied to the annual assumption review. So just. Uh, uh, sort of an update there uh, in terms of your, your thinking um, in terms of overall uh, real estate and, and where the market's going for that asset class specifically. Uh, Jacques speaking. Um, in, in regards of real estate, uh, we're using external uh, valuation uh, to look at uh, all our real estate portfolio. And during those uh, appraisal performance, uh, there's uh, reviews uh, of some cash flows. Uh, believe it or not, some are positive, some are negative in the current context. Overall, since the beginning of the year, I can uh, I can tell that at the end of Q3, we already have 130 million worth of present value in reserve uh, impact, a negative impact, but as it has been compensated by uh, all the management action we've done, we've done so far this year. 
And uh, this one is quite important to understand that every year we do management action, but this year uh, the, the value of those management action went through the roof because of the, the widening of the spread in Q1 and Q2. So we've been able to create a lot of margin to face those downward pressure. So we, uh, that's what we've done uh, there. So uh, the situation is fluid in regard of that, but when we look at where we're heading, uh, we're quite fine to where we are uh, right now. And in terms of the thinking on the residential real estate portfolio, what uh, what was the driving uh, thought behind that? Okay. We exited the market. We mentioned it. Uh, the decision was taken last year. We exited the market, so we closed the transaction during the quarter. That's what happened during that quarter. But it's really that. Uh, we had had that business for many years. At the uh, at the time, it proved well. It was useful to match our liabilities. But recently, when we did this, our strategic thinking a couple of years ago, we decided that it no longer served our purposes. We would have had to invest into it. So for us, the best value for our shareholder was to sell it. So that's 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 it. And, and then, just if I can ask on. Um uh, a topic that Tom talked about, uh, the, the COVID uncertainty there, and, you know, uh, definitely oh, two quarters in now looks like your business is very resilient to, to COVID. I think in Q2, uh, you talked about uh, the 2020 results being better than initially assessed. So maybe a little bit more specific in terms of, you know, where the concerns lie as you look ahead, where do the risks lie in your view, uh, which specific businesses um is really the the source of your um, uh, concern, or where you think there's there's elevated risk that you wanted to uh, that you wanted to uh, adjust? Uh, actually, uh, I, I would say mortality. When we look at the mortality in the U.S., Q3 has been very bad. Uh, Q2 was less bad. We don't know. Is it? fluctuation, and we said that half of the mortality is coming from COVID, but you know the fact that because of distanciation, people are consulting less their physician, there are ripple effects in regards of mortality. So this one, uh, it's tough to call, but this one, uh, I want to be prudent on it. Uh, after that, when uh, uh, one of the things that we mentioned is uh, the governmental program that gives money to many people, if ever it stops, will we see a spike in uh, claims on disability because it will put a lot of pressure uh, on the household and uh, that's the kind of stuff. So just remember our thinking in May when uh, we, we said it, uh, we were seeing a lot of things that were dark. Uh, in Q2, like you said, we've been very resilient, and we are very happy with that. We had good news. IAH, uh, dealer services has been also claims has been uh, lower than expected and all that kind of stuff. But, but will they continue the same as the negative? It's quite tough to say. So uh, for me, it's, uh, it's that. Uh, when I look at LAPS, uh, LAPS has been positive so far this year. So, uh, which, which is great. So, but it's tough to say that it will continue that way. So, those are the things that I will look at. Right, maybe, 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 just one thing to add on this. I think I would say, I think it gives, it should give comfort to investors uh, that uh, we are able to deliver such a strong result, quarterly result, and at the same time, being able to um, to get some uh, additional comfort. Uh, you know, the examples that that Jacques gave. 
regarding some of the management actions that we've taken, uh, the, um, the reinsurance treaty that uh, we're working on right now. So I think it should give comfort. And this has been the philosophy of the company, trying to be prudent and at the same time being looking forward. Got it. Thanks. Our next question comes from Gabriel Deschenes with National Bank Financial. Please proceed. Hey, good afternoon. Just to follow up on that reinsurance question, I know you don't want to quantify stuff, but could you tell me, you know, what blocks of business, what risks were reinsured? Uh, like what, down, what, what, what downside uh, issues are you trying to uh, uh, address, I guess, or mitigate? Okay, like, like I said uh, earlier, every year we kick the tire about reinsurance. And this year, when uh, we look at all the quotes we got, we felt pretty comfortable with our assumption uh, where we are. Uh, there, there's a small adjustment I will make at year end. There, there would be an adjustment. It's not about mortality improvement. It's really the level for the ultimate mortality for product that the table has not been well constructed. So that, that, there's one thing that I will fix there. But overall, the mortality we're expecting in the future, we're quite fine with where we're sitting, and that's the message, uh, that's the conclusion when I look at that. However, for that deal, is because there was uh, aggressiveness in the market, the reinsurance market is healthy, so we, it's a good value on our, our we business. And uh, it's for individual insurance in Canada and also in the U.S. for final expenses. So it's, it's mortality-related. Mortality related, yeah. Gotcha. Uh, and the, I guess, uh, well, while we're on mortality, uh, you did touch upon it earlier, but you know, it, it, there have been a few quarters here where we've seen mortality losses, uh, gains on the pension side, but losses in the insurance businesses. Uh, too early to call it a trend, but uh, let's, uh, you know, maybe. Like, are you thinking any differently about it next this quarter than you were last quarter? Because last quarter you also said it wasn't a trend, but it might be. Yeah, that's a good question. No, it's pretty much the same as last quarter, actually, except that we're advancing, we're progressing on our experience study. And I refer to uh, a trend that started, it was very, very, very small last year. It's starting to show this year, but it will only grow if we don't fix it. So that's why we will fix it at year end. But the, if we look at this year, it's probably a lot temporary here because of the COVID situation, the, the fact that people are not seeing their physician and all that kind of stuff. So that's why the difficulty this year is really to figure out what's permanent, what's temporary, and most of it, I would expect, it's temporary. Gotcha. And then to wrap up my questions here, IAS, um, I, 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 I guess the premise I'm going to go with here is that there were, maybe still are, some concerns that due to low sales and maybe change, well, obviously changes in the macroeconomic environment, the goodwill that was uh, uh, that, that came with that acquisition was was maybe looking uh, too high and maybe subject to a write down. Based on the communication you're, you're giving us today, you know sales are looking up, and, and you know profits are in line with expectations. Is there, you know, is it still something we should be 
thinking about, or or can we put that to bed? And if if, if that's your position, maybe give me some uh, clarity on why. Okay, uh, Jacques speaking again. Uh, the, the outlook has not changed at all since the last conference call, so we don't expect a goodwill write down now and in the foreseeable future. And I will give you three reasons for that. First, uh, it's really a short-term profitability. That has, the, the COVID, we don't see long-lasting effect on that. It, it's temporary. So, uh, and remember that uh, IES acquisition is a growth story. And just keep in mind that we have the financial strength to, to go through that crisis as our capital ratio is showing, as our market protection are showing. And that market is very fragmented. So we believe that we will thrive after uh, the COVID period because there are many mom and pops that don't have our financial strength. So growth for the future, we still believe it is, in it, and uh, that part is intact. We said also in Q2 that on integration, we will go further than what we had in our acquisition model. And the reason why is because of work from anywhere experience we are living through with the COVID situation make us uh, see that we can go further and we keep, can be more efficient. Uh, you don't need to be in the same city to, to do some of the thing efficiently. So, uh, so that, that's another uh, added value that we will have compared to the acquisition plan. And the third which, uh, reason, which is nonetheless, we will uh, completely consolidate those operations with DAC, with the DAC operation. It will be only one company at the end of the day. And uh, just remember... Uh, we bought DAC two years ago, and the value of DAC has increased a lot since that time because both on growth side and on profitability side, it has been always above expectation. So it could give an additional comfort to what I said in Q2. Gotcha. Thank you. Have a good uh, rest of the week. Our next question comes from Doug Young with Desjardins Capital Markets. Please proceed. Hi, good afternoon, Jacques. Maybe this is for, for you. If I take the – I'm just going back to IAS and the accretion. And so the accretion for the quarter was one cent. Um, if I take out the uh, incremental increase in the amortization uh, for acquisition-related items uh, and after tax that, that's about eight cents. So I get to about nine cents. And then it looks like you your accretion um, integration expenses was – better than you had built into your expected profit. So there's a gain of two cents related to that. So then if I take that out, I get the seven cents accretion post, um, you know, post the, the noise around the amortization. Does that seem reasonable? Uh, and is that what we should be thinking of as a baseline going forward? And I get there's five extra weeks related to uh, May to June that's included in there. So maybe it's six cents. Is that a reasonable approach to think about it? Um not necessarily. I would say the best way to look at IES because one one of the things that I, I need to confess is the fact that IES, okay, was not calculating, was not uh, doing his financial statement on an IFRS basis. So when we did our plan and our expected profit, our amortization of intangible and so on, we put all amortization of intangible into the surplus line. We didn't put anything into 
uh, the expected profit. And in reality, there will be some asset that will be amortized at the subsidiary level, which will be included in expected profit. So the best way to eliminate all that noise is really to look at it overall, uh, from an overall basis. So the accretion for Q3, uh, the number you have, it's four cents. But the best is what we said in Q2, is really that uh, we expect that the accretion for this year would be five to 10 bips lower and the same next year than what we said. So for ne next year, what it means for 2021, it's uh, between 17 and 22 cents. That's what we expect for the moment. That's the best information I can provide. Yeah, and, and that does not consider the amortization and finite, uh, finite uh, life intangibles. So if we were to consider that, we would add another uh, 24 cents. 24 cents, yeah. Good okay, point. so that's, that's yeah, 17 to 22 is including the amortization. Okay. Exactly. Yeah, it's just it's 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 just it's wild. I've never seen a situation where there's been a gain on the amortization or the integration costs. Um, anyways, that's just maybe something. It just adds a little bit of confusion there. And then just on the actuarial assumption review for Q4, I think you've been crystal clear. You don't expect a, a material net impact from all the moving pieces. And then you've announced this real estate or uh, reinsurance transaction or deals that's going to create a gain. You know, is that the, is that the view that the actuarial assumption review is not going to have a material impact on, on results include the gain from the reinsurance transactions or are those two separate? No, those two, I, I look at them separately. As I, I'm trying to show on slide 13, I'm really doing my actual assumption the same as I was doing in previous year. I, I look at the long-term view. I conduct the experience today, and I will put my assumption for that. The reinsurance, what I will do with that is more look at the short-term negative impact that COVID will bring to us. So what are the headwinds? So it's really two different things that are attached together at the end of the day because those are assumptions, but it's really two different ways of looking at it. I didn't want, uh, I don't want to change my uh, normal annual process of actual review. Okay, so they're separate. So that's not, you're not including the gain from the reinsurance deals and the fact that it's going to not be, that the assumption review is not going to be material. Um, okay, so then just thinking about um, what you've talked about on slide 11. And I think it's interesting. I mean, if you went to a, basically maybe I'll just say like, and you can tell me if I'm thinking about this right. If you went to a mark-to-market model on equities, private and public that are backing liabilities versus the corridor approach, your LICAT would be seven points higher. Albeit you'd have more volatility in earnings, you'd have a higher, um, you'd have a higher LICAT ratio. So there's a bit of a trade-off between the two. Is that is that the right way to think of it? Yeah, that's the right way. And would you ever would you ever move to the mark to mark model? I mean, you've never been under it. You've always used the corridor approach, but like, if you ever got down to that level, or would you ever switch? No, actually, I don't want that. not at all. I, I I really like to be in that position right now. I think it allows us really to do. Um, transaction, looking at the long-term value, long-term protection, uh, uh, instead of having a short-term pressure to do transactions. So I prefer to be in that. Uh, the, the bad consequences is 
And, and that's what we're trying to do this quarter, actually, is to bring visibility to that extra margin that has proven to be very useful for us, but that, uh, that we have not done a great job to put uh, in front of everyone. But the thing that we need to remember as well is IFRS 17 will change everything, all the rules here. Yeah, we've been, yeah. A, strong belie- we've been a strong believer in that methodology because of the long-term nature of our business. Um, you know, in my mind, it, it, it didn't make sense that because of some, let's say, uh, changes in long-term interest rates from one quarter to the other, that uh, the income statement would show such a volatility. So, um, and I'm, ta- I'm, I'm using interest rate, but the stock market is the same here. Um, so, to, so for us, it's been, a, it's been, a, would say, a consistent way of measuring our earning power, which is based on the long-term nature of our business. Uh, but but Jack is right. I mean, IFRS 17 is going to bring a new world here. Yep. No, hands down for sure. And then just lastly on IAS, can you quantify what the contribution to expected profit was from IAS? Doug, oh, I have so many numbers in my head, so I don't want to answer that one because I I will probably confuse everyone. So I will stick with what I said earlier, the best way to look at it. Yeah, the, yeah the, the best way to look at it is really the, the four cents EPS accretiveness on a core basis uh, in 2020. And, and like, like Josh said, um, you know, if you want to know for next year, our best guess is something around 20 cents uh, uh, on a core basis for 2021. Okay, thank you. Our next question comes from Darko Mahalik with RBC Capital Markets. Please proceed. Hi, thank you. Actually, my my question was on the uh, on the U.S. operations and expected profit, and similar, basically the same thing. I mean, when I if I look at your your supplemental, and I look at the source of earnings for the U.S. operations, and, and this would be on page eight of your supplemental, as you can appreciate from from the outside looking in, there's a lot of moving parts this quarter. We have IAS now in there, plus it's in there since May. We have DAC bouncing back, and we have U.S. operations that have bad mortality. So as I look at this uh, source of earnings, and I see the expected profit and a few other line items that are kind of moving all over the place, what would be very helpful, if, Jacques, if you can take some time and, and, and walk through these line items with me. If you want to do it another time, that's fine. But for modeling purposes, it's very difficult uh, to build a model without some sort of run rate assumptions here on all of these line items, if you know where I'm coming from. So um, I realize you can't speak to it now, but maybe just a thought uh, to give us a hand uh, with the source of earnings model, especially for the U.S. operations, uh, given all the noise this quarter. And, uh, and and I'll leave it at that. I, I guess if you can't if you can't speak to to it now, um, it would be helpful at some point if you could. Okay, I got I got the point, Darko. So we will uh, we will uh, get in touch uh, for that. And like I said, we did our best uh, at the beginning of the year to try to put the model of IAS there. However, uh, like I said, they didn't produce anything on an IFRS basis. So we had 
we 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 took a shortcut putting things in intangible and this is bringing noise this is bringing noise right now the fact that we close a transaction later than expected also is bringing noise uh, compared to the expected so that's not an easy year next year it would be better but i will certainly contact uh, those that want uh, to have more information uh, to to give the details that would be great thank you Ladies and gentlemen, as a reminder to register a question, please press the 1-4 on your telephone. Our next question comes from Paul Holden with CIBC World Markets. Please proceed. Thanks. Good afternoon. So, you know, we've heard your messaging on the capital position and that you're quite comfortable with the solvency ratio given uh, where it sits versus target and the protection you have put in place on it. You know, one of the common feedbacks we hear from investors is the ratio is lower than peers. Just curious how you think about your solvency ratio versus your cost of capital. Like, how, how, how are you thinking about balancing that uh, that equation? Uh, if I understand correctly, your question is: you, you want to know um, how do we perceive our comp- um, capital ratio versus? our peers to some extent. And, and, you know, the way I would respond to that is that it's not fair to only compare the absolute amount uh, of the uh, Likert ratio. I think what is uh, better to look at is really the sensitivity of the, the ratio versus the target. And what we've demonstrated is that our capital ratio is much less sensitive uh, to macroeconomic factors um, and has also embedded in it some uh, protective, uh, you know, um, cushion. So the way I look at it myself is that if we were to be mark-to-market, we would be at 132%. Uh, That's the way I look at it. Obviously, there would be more volatility uh, from one quarter to the other, but, you know, to me, it's, it's... it's more fair, and that, that is why we, we tried this quarter to be a bit more uh, visible in terms of this, because it's unfair to say, well, you know, you are at 125%. That means you're lower than the others. That means it's more risky. That's not the case. Uh, we are uh, lower, but we have additional cushion, and if we, if we did not have put this additional cushion, we would be a much higher level. So that's, that, that is helpful, and... You know, sort of a follow-up question to that, because to me, last quarter, I think you said your capital priority is to continue to build the ratio over M&A, and clearly you can't do buybacks or dividend increases right now. Um, so any any more context in terms of your thinking, what the right capital ratio is would be, uh, would be helpful. Yeah, well, I would say um, there's the COVID period, and the, let's say there's the post-COVID period. In terms of the COVID period, uh, I don't mind to be in a position where our capital ratio is, let's say, um, higher than what we would otherwise try to, to stay with. So right now, we're probably, you know, at, at, I think we're much higher than where, where it is we would, we would want to be in the long run. So in a post-COVID, uh, certainly we would think about, uh, you know, doing buyback shares, or, you know, um, maybe uh, thinking more about uh, M&A. So for the time being, during the COVID, we're, we're pleased with where we are and the fact that it increases, you know, with the, the, the pace it increases right now. But certainly when the uh, COVID uh, is, is behind us, we will be again uh, look uh, at, you know, how is it that we deploy capital. And as we said in the past, our priority is to grow the company 
Um, and uh, if for some reason there is no opportunity, then there's other ways like you know buying buying back shares. That's helpful. Thank you. Um, one final question. I mean, a big a big big theme across financials is obviously uh, lower bond yields, and well aware that you've put in many layers of protection on the existing book of business. Just wondering how we think about your investment allocation on new sales. Is anything evolving there to help protect margins and maybe it's simply, you know, you've increased price on the product and therefore uh, investment allocation uh, doesn't need to change, but um, curious on an update, uh, an update there. Uh, that's a really good question. Uh, actually, uh, we we discuss about investment strategy every time we develop new products or we want to make review. But the good thing is more is the market allowing us to be able to increase our price and continue to get the sale, and that's exactly what we demonstrated in Q3. We just raised the price of the long-term guaranteed product because of a decrease of interest rate, and our sales are continuing to grow, to to, to Increase and the market has uh, some. Some competitors have done the same thing because we are all in the same ballpark. We are all investing in the same kind of asset. And in regard of investment strategy, uh, uh, I would say that we try to optimize, always balance the risk we're taking, diversification of the risk versus the plus value that is bringing. And like I said in an earlier answer. In Q1 and Q2, we certainly took more, much more credit risk because we were paid to, to take it. In past year, we, we, we were very uh, shy of, and, uh, of getting uh, credit risk, but this year conditions were simply amazing. So our investment team every day uh, are doing a great job at optimizing that. That's very helpful, and those are, those are all the questions I had. Thank you. Our next question comes from Mario Mendonca with TD Securities. Please proceed. Good afternoon, Jacques. I'm sorry to do this to you, but I do need to go back to the IAS deal. Um, you talked about the $0.04 cents accretion, including that stub period from Q2. That number is uh, pretty hard for me to get to when I just play with the numbers that you've already provided for us. Um, specifically, we know that the U.S., um, the U.S. expected profit was up as much as almost $22 million sequentially. And uh, we also know that the uh, those about $11.4 million associated with the amortization of the intangibles. Would, that would suggest to us then that the IAS contributed something like 10 maybe even $11 million in expected profit in the quarter. And, and I can't find other areas to... Uh, subtract from from that number to get me down to the force secretion because I'm, I'm obviously I'm a, a lot higher than force and secretion if I stop at the expected profit and then just tax effect it. So is there something I'm missing that gets us down to the four cents? Well, uh, it's Denny here. I guess um, I spare Jacques on that one. <laughs> yeah. uh, I think you have to subtract in the line income on capital, the fact that we've already obviously paid the price and there are some less uh, income on capital. So it's the net of the you know increase in expected um, minus the uh, amortization that we, we discussed earlier minus mm -hmm. some of the income and capital that we don't earn anymore. So Denis, I went straight to that to see if I could find it there because that was my initial impression. And I looked at the financing line on page 22 of your presentation and the financing line hasn't changed at all. So my next obvious step was to go to investment income. I see that investment income is down, but that's really a function of the 
uh, software charges and other charges in the quarter, not so much lower investment income. So I, I kind of have done my homework trying to look for an answer here. And from what you disclosed, I can't see where the offset is. Where is the negative to IAS? Because it's not apparent in this schedule. Okay, for sure it won't show in the financing line because financing is really related to the 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 debenture we issued. Okay. Uh, so it's really income on surplus that will be lower because of the fact that we have we have a goodwill and intangible, mm-hmm. finite and tangible, which earn no return. Before the acquisition, okay. we had assets that were earning return. So I don't believe that part will be isolated. Uh, so that's why it's uh, it's a little bit tough to uh, to get to that number. So I, 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 th- I think here it's a, it's a similar question we had before, and maybe the, you know the, with the um, offline, you know, we can work on the numbers just to yeah. reconcile the yeah. equitiveness with with you guys. So yeah. it would be a pleasure for us to do that. Yeah. But, but just just so we're clear, the decline in investment income that page appears on page 22. I imagine a portion of it could be the lost capital but most of that decline is associated with the software write-off because that's where it went through. That's my understanding from looking for disclosure. So I, I think it should be clear, pretty clear from the nature of our discussions that um, the success and failure of IAS uh, plays an important role in how investors are looking at your company. So yeah. really transparent disclosure around its accretion, we need more than just saying four cents. I think we all need to understand this better to, to put support around it. Okay. Okay. So uh, maybe that, that's why I say there's so much noise because of the way the, the, our gain and loss is working. So that's why mm-hmm. the best summary is really to, uh, to, to remember that we mentioned that uh, the trend acquisition, uh, IAS and Lubrico and uh, Walker Group, and they, they, they are immaterial. Let, let's think, let's uh, say it's only uh, IAS here. We said 15 cents uh, earlier this year. Okay. Now, in Q2, we said it would be five to ten cents lower than that. So it means that for the for this year, we expect it would be between five and ten cents total. What we're seeing in the current result of Q3, what you're seeing is uh, plus four cents. That's what you're seeing right now. We will see in Q4 what will it be. But overall, overall, really. IES is bringing will bring between five and, and ten cents this year. That's what we're seeing actually. I understand, and, and what I'm what I'm suggesting to you is that for something yeah. this important to the company, yeah, it's not sufficient information to understand what's going okay. on with IES. And okay. that, I think that was the point Darko was making. Yeah, th- thank you, guys. I mean, th- this is very helpful information. And, it, and it's funny because uh, we're trying to be as transparent as possible. Our uh, source of earnings uh, provides uh, much more detail than what you would find in, I mean, per sectors, for example, than what you would mm-hmm. find other elsewhere. But I realize on that one uh, that, uh, you know, that we can go the extra step to be even more uh, detailed. Yeah, because th- this, is, this is completely insufficient to understand it. Uh, on a different note, uh, when I when I saw that uh, there's a reinsurance gain coming down the pipe, and you've also talked about maybe allocating it to other areas of uncertainty, the cynic in me immediately turned to um, the, the, the the subprime auto lending. Are, is there any potential here that this could be allocated to to further shore up the provision against the subprime auto? Uh, that's not at all what we're contemplating because actually if you look at that the experience of 
of the car loan, uh, we succeeded of having great results, and even if you look at the experience, was better than expected. So we added an additional three million over the provision during the quarter. So our provision now is sitting at 27 million, and we are very comfortable with that. So that's not our intention to use uh, the reinsurance uh, gain for that at all. So what what hole is it that you need to, to you need to fix going into Q4? Uh, it, it really depends. If I look at, uh, if you're speaking particularly about uh, the um, reinsurance agreement, I mentioned earlier that for sure mortality, specifically in the U.S., but there's some mortality as well in uh, Canada. Uh, there could be some impact uh, coming from labs. So far, it has been positive, but I'm not sure it will be the same. I have also to think about maybe some uh, infrastructure, some private plus play, uh, equity, some uh, uh, more private bonds, uh, maybe some real estate. So there are things like that that we are thinking through right now. What are the things that has not gone well since the beginning of the crisis? What are the things that have been going well, but because of government uh, programs? So that's the thinking we are, we are having, and I want to look at that, at that for maybe a couple of thinking that uh, those effects will last for a couple of years. So that's really the thinking behind that. Okay. That covers it. Mr. Ricard, there are no further questions at this time. Please continue with your presentation or closing remarks. Well, thank you. Um, I think you've seen that um, our strong results for this quarter is a testimony of the resilience of our business model. Uh, one thing that I think is very important, or two things that are very important, is, as I mentioned before, um, the fact that we've invested significantly technology and has been a, um, we've developed competitive advantages on that, and you can see that very clearly on our sales result this year. And the second thing is, and we try to emphasize this, this quarter, is on a, the strength of our capital, and you've seen it on slide 11, um, you know, to, to compare it uh, on a fairly basis with, uh, let's say, any other players, that we've got additional cushion in, the, uh, in our balance sheet to uh, compensate of any downturn in the market. I think it's very important that, um, you know, um, we, we had to explain that. Uh, it's very important for us. So, anyway, good quarter, and thank you very much. That does conclude the conference call for today. We thank you for your participation and ask that you please disconnect your line. Have a great day, everyone. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.